Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. This week we welcome back Nizar Hassan. Nizar, welcome back, man. Thank you. How, how was your trip? It was great, actually. I had a conference in Amman and then another one in Berlin, and they were all good. Wonderful. Well, it, it is so great to have you back. While while you were gone, we, we had a couple of guest hosts. Uh, we had Jeremy Arbid and then Nadine uh, Mouawad. Uh, they were both really wonderful. Great guests. I yeah. love the episodes. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're going to have to start bringing guests on uh, with both of us here at some point in the future. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we, we've got a lot to talk about this week, so let's just jump right into it. The lights are still on. Uh, there, there was this question whether the generator owners might go on strike because on Monday, a new regulation that meters had to be installed went into effect. And so there's basically nobody's really happy right now. I mean, the economy ministry is out in force issuing citations within the first couple of days. There were like 100, more than 100 citations issued, uh, but no major strikes by the generator owners. And also they're in talks right now. The question right now is the government wants the meters installed first and then to talk about adjustments to the pricing later. And the owners want to flip that order, right? They want to agree on a price first and then install the meters. So we'll see what's happened, uh, what's going to happen. But uh, it, things seem to be going pretty well right now com- compared to what it could have been, happened, you know? Yeah, a strike would have been crazy. Yeah, exactly. Also, on Monday, Monday was a big news day, by the way. On Monday, we had 752 Syrian refugees uh, return with uh, general security. Now, you may be wondering, you know, how many uh, refugees have actually returned overall? The Daily Star's Abi Sewell actually looked at the numbers. Uh, and <laughs> cause Abbas Ibrahim claims that 50,000 have returned this year. 25,000 of those returning, like, under the auspices or with the facilitation of general security. But if you go back and you actually count up, and Abby actually did this, go and count up all of the numbers that General Security has released through their various press releases, because every time one of these things happens, they send out a press release, right? If you go and count those up, it's really about, it, it came to a little more than 4,000. Wow. Uh, not 25,000, 4,000 b- before the latest return. So with the latest return, we're thinking like probably a little less than 5,000 total. That's Regardless, quite the difference. So, yeah, it's a really big difference, but within the grand scheme of things, it's not, right? Because you've got a million, a million and a half refugees maybe in the country. So, you know, whether it's 5,000 or 25,000, eh, it, it's a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Also on refugees, Abbas Ibrahim came out Saturday and said he was hoping that Syrian authorities would issue an amnesty, which would allow uh, more Syrians from Lebanon to return uh, so this is also something that we may be seeing in the future coming down the pipeline. I mean, this would be the only possible way in which like tens of thousands of refugees would be able to to go back, I guess, especially refugees coming from like um, opposition uh, communities. Yeah. And I mean, it seems so that would also require a some sort of political settlement. Yeah. Right. Uh, we had news at the airport this week. Fenianos, uh, our Minister of Transportation, uh, Public Works and Transportation, came out and announced a new $18 million project to hopefully fix some of the issues at the airport. He said it's not an expansion. It's just sort of like refurbishing and, and hopefully making a few things better so that we don't have, you know, like, remember this summer, we had massive problems at the airport with overcrowding and uh, long lines and, and all sorts of things going on. And so this will hopefully address some of the problems, but it, it isn't like th- the answer, right? The expansion, the answer is, you know, a $500 million, much larger $500 million program, uh, which we're, we're going to talk about later in the episode, actually. Yeah. yeah so th- this is a, a much smaller uh, issue. 
in in September we had we had numbers come out from the airport and in September passenger traffic was actually down slightly off like one uh 1.3%, which is interesting I think cuz so far this year we've just been busting through records. And so for the first month you mean actually down from last year? Down off of September 2017, right? Okay, yeah, you yeah. compare apples to apples September to September, then you you've got a fall a, a drop, a small drop in traffic. But we're still like we're scheduled still to just bust through records this year uh we're, we're still for the first nine months of the year still uh airport passenger traffic is up something like seven percent also at the airport if you remember a couple of weeks ago there was this problem between the army and the isf at the airport this was the day i was traveling actually oh really oh my god i was god. so scared i wouldn't be able to catch my uh, flight so something good apparently has come of that uh, according to reports both of the ISF head at the airport and the army head at the airport, they're both going to be dismissed and replaced with new people. So yay for accountability, I say. Like, this is not super common that, you know, something like this happens and then the people responsible for it are actually re- relieved of their positions, right? Yeah, but I don't think the individuals would be the problem in this case. I mean, maybe these two people were not following the the procedures or whatever, but there must be a bigger problem for this thing to happen. Maybe? I, I don't know. Like, I... I, I don't know enough about like the inside baseball of airport security. Who does? Uh, <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody really does. This is black box. Uh, I mean, I do think, though, that personalities could potentially be part of the problem. And so if that's the case, then maybe this will help solve the problem. But yeah, we don't we don't know if this will actually fix all, all the things that are wrong. I mean, at least it shouldn't happen again. It was really embarrassing. Yeah, Just let's the news. Was, let's hope not. Yeah. Let's hope not. And and speaking of the airport, we had a couple of weeks ago, if, if you remember, Netanyahu spoke at the General Assembly in New York, and he claimed, he, he held up this graphic, uh, which, which, by the way, was a lot less cartoonish than some of his previous graphics at the UN General <laughs> Assembly. <laughs> he held up this graphic this time, and it was like an aerial photo of uh, Beirut Airport, like the northern part of Beirut Airport, and it had three dots for what he claimed were Hezbollah-like precision missile sites right next to the airport. And so Basile, uh, Jibran Basile, our foreign minister, leader of the FPM, he led sort of this chaotic tour of one of those sites on Monday, basically to, to rebut what Netanyahu had said. And so they went, Netanyahu had claimed sort of bizarrely, I think, that Ahed Stadium, where the football club Ahed, like trains, that is a site for missiles. Which it is, I mean, it seems like kind of a weird place to put militarily sensitive equipment yeah. where a bunch of kids are running around and play. Like, I have my questions. But anyway, th- this is the site that, that the foreign ministry chose to, to go explain to. explain as well, Ahad is the football team that is affiliated with Hezbollah. Right, right. So who knows what's going on with that? That's, uh, <laughs> so... Basile organized this tour uh, for for diplomats. He said, if you're a, a diplomat here in Beirut from any country, come to the foreign ministry. We're going to do a, a press conference and then we're going to take you on a tour of the sites. Well, they only ended up going to one site. And before they got there, they stopped at the wrong place. They stopped at the golf club, which is north of the place. And then they pointed to a warehouse and said, that's the warehouse. It was not the warehouse. It was nowhere close to being the warehouse. But they got loaded back up on the buses, I guess. And they got to Ahad Stadium. And and they're like, it, it was the real deal. Diplomats, reporters were able to just like look at anything, anything they wanted to uh, see the entire place, all of that. But then afterwards, Basile 
led the envoys and the reporters outside to next to this warehouse. Uh, and he said, well, clearly, like, there's nothing to see here. <laughs> well, you're standing in front of this warehouse saying there's nothing to see. Well, well let's see inside of it. Uh, th- that's what uh, my, my colleague uh, Timur Ashari at the Daily Star mm-hmm. said. Well, l- let's let's look inside because, you know, it's it's the warehouse. Right. So they went inside. They they saw there was nothing there. But then it turns out, as we were like looking at the imagery in the office, that like, oh no, that wasn't that wasn't the warehouse that Netanyahu pointed out. You know, the that wasn't you know the second site that uh, is separate from Ahad Stadium that uh, Netanyahu had pointed out. And this warehouse was not like on the grounds of the stadium e- either. So I'm not really sure why Basile chose the warehouse in yeah, the first place. Yeah, led people to this location to make his like final statement. It, it was it was really sort of bizarre. <laughs> Uh, I'll also mention that uh, Yassin Jabber, the the head of Parliament's uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, led a tour of of the committee down to the south. And and this was also sort of aimed in in the same general direction, you know, saying that despite whatever Israel may claim, the army in Unifil does exert control over the south of the country. And and with all of these, with, with with these two tours... Uh, you can see sort of a concerted effort on the side of the the Lebanese political class to uh, rebut what they see as Israeli pretexts for a potential war. Yeah. I mean, what otherwise was Netanyahu doing yeah. with, with his presentation? It was clearly like just giving a, an excuse for any future intervention or aggression. Right. I mean, yeah, if you have these missile sites there, then, oh, if, if you bomb the airport, then... You you have your uh, you have your excuse for doing that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, though, about these tours is that it, it's sort of a rare show of political unity here in Lebanon. I mean, you don't often hear people praising Gibran Basile uh, from certain quarters, for instance, right? Yeah, from most quarters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but here you did like you you saw like real and genuine praise for him, uh, real and genuine praise for for Aoun. That did not translate so much into the domestic political scene, right? The week started out with a backlash to Aoun's uh, majoritarian government suggestion, right? When he was coming back from the UN General Assembly, he had mentioned the possibility of forming a majoritarian government instead of a government of national unity where everybody is represented. And the, the backlash was was swift, and it came from basically everybody. Yeah. All of the parties have agreed we want a national unity yeah, it's government. Yeah, the table, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and even Alan himself had to sort of like walk things back a couple days later. Uh, he, he said he was misunderstood. Uh, I'm not sure how exactly, but uh, that seemed to be like a very unpopular suggestion. Then Wednesday, Hariri went up to Bob to palace, unexpectedly sort of. And, and this came, uh, as uh, Joseph Habush pointed out on Twitter, this came like exactly one month after his his trip up there last time, right? Which, yeah. where he like gave this cabinet, cabinet formula to Aoun and then Aoun like immediately swatted it down. Yeah. yeah. So this time around, he didn't present a cabinet formula, according to reports, but he, he came out like saying he was very optimistic. So Thursday, Hariri went on Marcel Ghanem's new show, uh, Sarawat, and, and he predicted a government within seven to 10 days, which, by the way, is sometime between the 11th and the 14th of October. And he, he seems very like confident about this. Now, I, I think we should take just a moment. And I know that I have mentioned this numerous times on this on this show. Oh, yes, you have. But <laughs> we, we, we just passed a milestone on Saturday. It was 135 days since Hariri was designated. In 2009, it took Hariri 135 days to form a government. In 2011, it took Mikati 139 days to form a government. 
So today, right now, on Monday, we are 137 days in. So we are right smack dab in the middle of that 2009 time and the 2011 time. On Wednesday, we will be at the Ma'ati to, uh, 2011 139-day mark. Once we get too far beyond this, then things are going to start seeming more and more like we're in Tamam Salam territory. We are in this deadlock that is just intractable, that is unsolvable. And so... Really, we don't want to get to that point because then that could affect things like confidence in the government or confidence in Lebanon and the ability of politicians to actually solve problems, things like that. Uh, in, and in case you're wondering, we're, we're not going to pass the uh, Tamam Salem mark until April 4th, but that's beside the point. Once we get too far beyond Hariri 2009, Makati 2011 point, then people are going to start feeling like we're in this intractable situation, right? I mean, as long as you're telling them the numbers. <laughs> so you're kind of guilty. How so? Because you're the only one in the country who's counting these numbers, no? Oh, I'm sure I am not the only one counting the numbers. <laughs> uh, and the other thing about this, just to be mindful of the dates, is that on October 16th, Parliament begins its new session. And as of that date, Parliament can do no work until they pass a budget. Well, what do you need for Parliament to even get a budget? You need a cabinet to pass the budget. So you need a cabinet. And if cabinet is not formed in the next seven to 10 days or so, then basically you're going to have a bunch of state institutions paralyzed. So Haru's words, like they, they were more than just like, th there was something behind them is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, Basile came out the next day and just sort of like shot everything down. He just crushed all hopes, right? And, and just saying like, I don't want to give the Lebanese people false hope. And he, in this uh, speech, in this press conference, he suggested that for every block in parliament, you should, for, for every five uh, MPs you have, you should get like one minister, which if you do the math, it, it's actually pretty close, right? It, it's very reasonable. And so this, though, it, it means certain things like the LF would get three seats instead of four or the five that they're asking for. It means that PSP would get two seats instead of the three that they're asking for. So it, it works out in Basile's favor a lot. He chose the right way to, you know, the yeah, right logic. That's very convenient for him as a formula. And he implied also that he was willing to compromise. You know, he, he said of Hariri, like, just as he has called on others to make concessions, let him do the same. Uh, basically, it, it, it sounded like he was referencing the LF and the PSP, like they should make concessions. And, and he also said that they, the FPM was willing to stay out of the government. To me, though, all of these words just ring really hollow. Basile is the one who is seen as uncompromising. We've seen compromises out of the LF. They, they compromised with four instead of five ministers, right? We've seen compromises out of Jumblat in the PSP, right? Or, or at least like a suggestion that they are willing to compromise, which we haven't really seen from Basile or Aoun. And, and yeah, and, what he says now is we either get 11 ministers according to his formula or we stay out, which is more of a political blackmailing move than it is actually a suggestion. Well, I mean, it's it's not something that's even really taken seriously. This idea that the FPM could sit out, out of the government, it's not taken seriously because when he says that, it means that the FPM as its six ministers that he believes, according to his formula, the FPM should get, those six ministers would not be in the government. But Aon would still get to appoint five ministers, and we all know 
that Allen would appoint FPMers, right? That's what he did, I mean. Yeah, in the current cabinet. Exactly. He has, he has five ministers, and they are all either card-carrying members of the FPM or very close to the FPM. So whenever you talk about this, you, you consider the presidential share and the FPM share the same thing. And, and the idea that they would get 11 ministers, of course, is ridiculous. 11 ministers means a blocking third. It means you can basically hold up anything you don't want in the cabinet. Uh, and, and I don't think any of the political sides, Including even their his allies, allies yeah, yeah, yeah. they're not willing to give him that. And all of this sort of plays into this, uh, in, in my opinion, increasingly solid narrative that Aoun and Basile are the problem in cabinet formation. Tamam Salem came out this week and said most of the blame lies with Aoun. We also had uh, Georges Edouin coming out in Nahar this, uh, this week, making the case that Zsa, Zsa and Jumblat had shown flexibility, whereas Basile has not, which is something that really rings true, right? Yeah. And me personally, like I'm, I'm increasingly convinced of this narrative as well. And, and this is a problem, I think, for Alan and Basile, because if others are convinced as well, if this narrative really gets solidified and gains steam, that's really bad for them because it, it makes it seem as though they are willing to let the country burn to the ground unless they get exactly what they want. And this is the scary part. I mean, you don't. We don't know if uh, this stalemate is the result of very complicated calculations of political leverage. You know, on the economic side and the political side and the regional politics, etc. Or it's just like men being men. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's the scary part. Yeah. And we know also that the country might actually burn to the ground as well because of another event that happened this week. Basically. Reuters correspondent, financial correspondent here, Lisa Barrington, came out with a report that scared the ever-living shit out of everyone who read it. <laughs> to, to put everyone it mildly. understood it. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it was full of financial jargon, we have to say. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was, it was very much like a financial journalism uh, piece, yeah. Uh, but, but it was still, it was very scary, right? And it, it basically recounted that a couple of weeks ago, back in mid-September, the cost of insuring... Lebanon sovereign debt just spiked uh, to levels, you know, not seen since like 2008 financial crisis times. Uh, as uh, Dan Azzi, the, the former head of Standard Chartered here in Lebanon, he, he had a piece in Anhar uh, this week as well. His report said a senior, a senior banker even described the situation using the term hushed panic. So we, we know, like, from insiders, this was a really, really big deal. It was really scary. And, and the, the reason, according to Barrington's report, apparently foreign buyers of, of Lebanese uh, debt, they found out that Lebanese banks were selling their portfolios. <laughs> and, 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 you know, if the locals aren't as willing to invest in, like, the local market as they used to be, then you, as maybe an international investor, maybe you're also, you're going to take take a cue from that and say, oh, maybe they know something, right? Yeah. And, and you're going to pull back as well. But to explain this in one sentence, because we didn't really make it much simpler than the piece we were... <laughs> so to explain it, um, the thing is that the confidence in Lebanon's ability to pay back its debt and therefore uh, other people's ability in the economy to pay back to or willingness to pay back their debts is low. And this... Uh, lack of confidence is a sign of a possible economic crisis. Right. So luckily, things have calmed down a little bit since then. But but they're like things are still not back to normal levels yet. 
And and all of this brings us to sort of the elephant in the room, and and that is like Le- the Lebanese state's financial soundness, right? And a big part of that is the ginormous amount of debt that we have, right? We've got something like eighty-one billion dollars in debt, which is something close to one hundred fifty percent of GDP. Like we're number three in the world as far as that goes. We're behind Japan and Greece, and then us on debt to GDP ratio. So one of the strongest economies. A collapsed economy and then Lebanon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I, I guess you can read into that whatever you want to think. But the, the, the point is, it would take a lot for Lebanon to pay off its debt. And so there's a big question about whether Lebanon can pay off its debt. And that really brings us to what we want to dive into today. And, and that is the Capital Investment Program and uh, the CEDR conference in Paris back in April. Because that was sort of the idea. One of the big problems facing Lebanon's finances is just these persistent drains on things like electricity, for instance, costs the state something like $1.5 to $2 billion every year. The mm. state's just losing that money. It's a huge part of the deficit, and it, it keeps adding to the debt in an unsustainable way. And so the idea from, uh, from the outside here is, is that the international community would come together and they would say, okay, you really need infrastructure investment. Your infrastructure sucks, mm. but it would bust your budget to actually fix it. So we're going to take care of that. But in return, you also need to do a bunch of reforms to set like the state on a proper fiscal path. Yeah, I mean, as you said, infrastructure investment is the top priority for Lebanon now, especially that we have like one of the worst infrastructures in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, we, We've repeatedly complained about this on our show, right? Yeah, and according to the World Economic Forum, we're among 137 countries, we're number 130. This is how bad our infrastructure is compared to the level of income of the country because Lebanon is a middle-income country. It should not have this much of a horrible infrastructure. But it makes sense because Lebanon in the last few years has been spending very little on infrastructure. Apart from the deficit from the electricity company, Lebanon has not been making any real public investment. From the GDP, it's only 1.8% compared to a world average of 5%. So you can imagine how much of an impact that would have, especially that Lebanon's GDP is also extremely modest compared to large countries investing in their infrastructure. So we're talking about very little money being invested. And infrastructure is not anything that is naturally developed in the market because it's always state public investment that develops infrastructure. So this is the importance of, or this is the purpose behind SADR. And to give some background, SADR is not like the first of its kind. SADR is the fourth conference that is held in Paris to support the Lebanese economy. Because we had the first one in 2001. And in 2001 was the time when uh, Rafik Hariri's plan, economic plan to revamp the, the economy and reconstruct was kind of failing. And uh, the, he needed an international support to increase confidence in the economy. But Paris 1 was very small. It was only $500 million um, of aid. And then the one next year, Paris 2, in November 2002, was the bigger one with $4.2 billion in aid and grants. And in that one, uh, 23 countries participated giving money. And um, four, five years later, after Hariri's assassination, we had the last... Uh, and, and after pass. the Israeli war. Right? After the Israeli yeah. war. This was the relevance of it. And it was Sanyura as the head of government. Also in France, another conference with 38 countries pledging money. Um, and the, the amount was even bigger, $7.6 billion. 
And all of these three conferences were organized by Jacques Chirac, who was the French president and who had a very close relationship with Rafik Hariri. And um, the other uh, relevant thing about these three previous uh, Paris conferences is that they are not considered as resounding successes, right? Oh, no, they're not. (laughs) I mean, they all had these conditions like reforms that the Lebanese state is required to do. And very little of that has been achieved. Sometimes and not even all the money was used as well, right? Exactly, because the money is pledged. It's not like actually, it's not cash being given to the Lebanese state. It's yeah. pledged, and some of it is projects, some of it is money. Yeah, so you can you can definitely see why they rebranded the conference. I, I feel like they specifically really did not want to call this Paris Four because that would be basically be saying, "Oh, this is going to be a failure." Right. But it is Paris 4. It's the same thing on a grander scale. It's exactly the same. The Lebanese economic model failing and then we need international support to survive um, or to prevent the collapse. So Lebanon went to Sadr with a plan, the capital investment plan. And uh, what this is about is basically where in the infrastructure should we invest uh, right, because the, the international community said, like, come to this conference, but come with pitching ideas of how how do you want to spend this money, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. What are your what are your investment needs? What are your infrastructure needs? You can tell us that, and then we will fund them. And Lebanon uh, responded with this plan that had three phases, uh, like chronological phases, and uh, all of them together are twenty amount to twenty billion dollars in investment in infrastructure. And we can go through like the different sectors to give an idea or of where this money so, should so, go. So, but Paris Four, to use the improper terminology, <laughs> uh, Paris Four funded just phase one of this, right? Because it was only like eleven billion or something, right? Yeah, it's not very clear where the money is going in terms of uh, the components of the CIP. Okay, but it must be around that, yeah, around the amount we need for for phase one. Yeah, so it isn't it isn't like a one to one relationship where like Paris Four funds the CIP. Yeah, it doesn't fund all of it, of course, because it's 11 out of 20. But yeah, the, the priorities for the Lebanese government in the capital investment plan were mostly transport uh, with $6.9 billion of investment and almost $2, $2 billion in land expropriation that they need to for these investments. And here we're talking about expanding the airport and improving roads across the country, maybe new highways, improving uh, existing networks. Roads. Yeah, the expanding the airport part, that's that 500 million that we mentioned yeah. earlier earlier in the show, right? Exactly. Also, the big, big issue of transport, especially in Beirut, will be uh, supposedly fixed with a World Bank-sponsored project to do like a bus rapid transit system uh, in Beirut and the uh, horrible traffic jam between Beirut and northern areas especially around Junia and Kaslik, which everyone who lives in Lebanon knows, will be solved with the project um, to improve the Beirut-Aqaybe highway. And apart from that, you have the rehabilitation of the Renem Awad airport in the north, establishing a railway between Tripoli and the Syrian border, a highway around Saida, and expanding the Saida seaport. Which, this by the way, transport. I'll just note on the side, some of these projects sound more aspirational than realistic. Yeah. And they're all projects, uh, most of them are projects around coastal areas to make transportation of cars easier. We should know that as well. This is still still the mentality. There's no plan, for example, to establish a railway system across Lebanon in, in the capital investment plan, mm. although a lot of people say this this is much better for the long term. Anyway, apart from transport, we have uh, water and irrigation, uh, which received $4.3 billion of the planned uh, investment. 
and uh, $600 million in land expropriation. This is mostly about improving the water network in the country, which everyone suffers from. The lack of good water, everyone now nowadays, for example, is buying a lot of water for their houses, especially in uh, urban areas, because it's the end of the summer, and this is what you do every year. And apart from the inv- and improve- improvement of the water network, we also have two major projects in the, in the water sector. Uh, the Al-Barid, uh, Sad Al-Barid, the Al-Barid Dam in Akkar, which will cost around $300 million, and uh, building the irrigation and water supply networks in Nabatiya in the south, which will cost around $300 million. And by the way, here we are getting, we are using the help of Executive Magazine, which had like a breakdown of the capital investment plan. And we will have that was uh, done by Jeremy Arbid, friend yeah, of the show, right? Our guest yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we will, of course, uh, put the link um, in the description of this episode. So this is for transport and water. For wastewater treatment, we also had $2.6 billion dollars plus uh, a very small amount for land expropriation, apparently only $57 million. Uh, And this is about improving treatment plants that already exist and creating new ones across the countries. And the two major projects are upgrading the Dora treatment plant with $300 million and uh, $83 million to build treatment plants around Alay. Yeah, this is really important. We we had an entire episode <laughs> related to like sea pollution and stuff, which wastewater is a huge part of, right? Exactly, exactly. And obviously, the most important of them all for everyone, electricity. Uh, we have $5.6 billion planned for the sector. Uh, apparently, no money specified for uh, land ex- expropriation. But there's $1.2 billion for new or additional 1,000 megawatts um, to be produced in Salata and in Zahrani. Um, Which would like barely cover the, the, deficit. the deficit that we yeah. have in peak hours uh, of the summer, right? Yeah, it's the minimum we need for that. Yeah. And um, we have $140 million planned for gas pipelines that will run across this the coast, according to the plan, to deliver gas um, to the power plants. And apart from that, we have $700 million for the telecom sector, $1.4 billion for uh, solid waste management sector, but without any concrete plans, and $264 million for the culture and tourism industry, and only $75 million for manufacturing, which is, uh, to me, is fascinating that in this whole plan, capital investment, investing in things that in the long term would produce value in the economy or would uh, help you achieve economic growth you only have 75 million for manufacturing and it's mostly about creating three industrial cities and continuing the project of the Tripoli economic zone so you just listed off a whole lot of cash a lot of projects a lot of money and everything i i just want to note though that like when we're talking about the airport for instance 500 million dollars this is an interesting number to me because a few months before said uh, they came out with a proposal to expand the airport for $200 million. And then magically in April, that number was up to $500 million. And I kind of feel like somebody should look into how, how did that money more than double uh, <laughs> for yeah. the airport inspection? I, I, I assume that they just had like a grander plan in mind, but it kind of sounds as though maybe they wanted to ask for a certain amount of money at, at Paris for, and they found a way to get there. Also with, with all this money, I mean, they're not just the international community is not just giving this to Lebanon, right? There is, the deal is, we will give you this money to fix your decrepit infrastructure. And in return, you're going to, well, pay back most of it, right? Eventually. <laughs> but also, we we need you to actually enact reforms, right? Yeah. There's always this discourse about reforms that Lebanon needs to do uh, to deserve the money or to fix it or not to need another Paris conference in a few years. And um 
according to the IMF, for example, which does um, yearly Article 4 consultations that uh, describes the Lebanese economy and the status and uh, has recommendations about what to do. Uh, the IMF says that there are four major areas or three major areas, but I will uh, divide them into five, actually. One of them is fiscal policy, um, which is stabilizing the debt and the deficit in the budget and trying to decrease the debt gradually, start decreasing the debt soon, because right now it's increasing, of course. And in order for that, you need a budget. And in order for that, you need a cabinet. Do you want to talk about cabinet formation more? Or no, no, I'm oh, okay, done. I got you. it out of my system. <laughs> and uh, also a major issue is reducing the risk of a financial collapse, which uh, the IMF says has to be based on incentivizing the banks to increase their buffers or their reserves to make sure that the risk of them giving out too much loans and not being able to uh, to receive them, etc., what happens in financial collapse is low. You also have um, a major component, which is reforming the electricity sector and uh, establishing the anti-corruption regulate- regulatory fra- framework for to make sure that any public investment plans in the future or also the things already happening are done with, um, with the minimum amount of corruption and waste of public funds. And the last one, which is seen in the director's uh, in the IMF director co- director's consultations with Lebanon is to achieve fiscal balance by increasing uh, VAT rates, gradually eliminating eliminating electricity subsidies and restraining public wages. And this is, I think, the most controversial, but also the most important important part of their. Uh, recommendations, the things that they expect Lebanon to actually do. And and also, these are relatively easy things to do, like increasing the VAT is kind of an easy thing to do, because uh, the VAT's already put in place. Uh, so you, you don't have to like institute new taxes or close loopholes or whatever. Everybody who's already paying VAT is just going to pay like a percent or two more. And yeah. the same with rest- restraining like public salary hikes, you have to do literally nothing. Just don't raise the wages anymore. Yeah, I mean, all you have to think about in this case is the reprisal from or the anger of the population in response to such measures. I mean, more regressive taxation in Lebanon, I think, is the least we need. We can talk about that in a minute. But also, apart from, uh, as mentioned, apart from VAT and restraining straining wages, the issue of eliminating electricity subsidies is something that is discussed by everyone. Although it's a very complicated thing to eliminate subsidies in a way that uh, does not hurt the poor and that only removes subsidies of people who don't actually need them. Yeah. So it's not as simple as eliminating them. I'm surprised the IMF used this language. But right, you, need, you need to reform the entire sector. And that's like a whole that's that's the hard one there. Right. Of course. So like the weird thing to me is why is the international community so interested in Lebanon? Mm. I mean, it's a small country, you know, uh, if Lebanon were to fail, like catastrophically, let's say, it's not going to like bring down the United States. It's not going to bring down Germany. It's not going to bring down France. Right. Mm. Uh, So why why is there so much interest in making sure that Lebanon stays stable? I don't know. To me, it seems like mostly a political issue. I mean, you have the issue of refugees, of course, which is uh, Europe wanting to prevent uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon to migrate to Europe by any means possible. And apart from the refugee uh, panic that Europe is in, there's also the issue of of local politics and what Lebanon means as a center for like proxy politics, specifically the fact that uh, we're right now in a time where Hariri has the last chance of saving himself politically, of proving that you know he has a he has a plan for Lebanon that he's bringing in funds because this is the added value of the Hariri family. If you think about it, 
the whole Hariri uh, political legacy has been built on the connections that late Rafiq Hariri had in bringing in money and bringing in political um, um, sponsorship for his projects. Whether that's from the Gulf or from Europe or wherever, right? Exactly. So I think Hariri's political fate or destiny relies on the ability to save the economy in this sense. So I guess maybe France and uh, Germany and other countries that have that would have much closer relationship to Hariri than to any of the opposition uh, of the opposing opponent parties in Lebanon has interest in, in maintaining the situation and preventing an economic collapse. Yeah, and by propping up Hariri in this way as well and supporting him in the, his in, in this way as well. You also have maybe one more chip to play uh, in a sort of uh, end settlement, political settlement uh, with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Exactly. If you imagine that uh, the pro-European or pro-Gulf political camp in Lebanon is defeated, then people who are taking over are the allies of the Syrian regime. As you're saying, it's a very problematic scenario for Europe and the Gulf. But anyway, we don't know if all of this is going to happen. As we said, there are many obstacles to actually achieving this plan. Um, and uh, spending the money in the right places and getting all the money that is pledged. But also, there's a question of whether this is the right thing to do in the first place. Yeah, pe- people have already suggested, like I think Habib Bata uh, has suggested, like this is just like the IMF trying to box Lebanon into austerity. Yeah, I mean, and I I totally agree with him because the vision that IMF is still pushing in Lebanon and in many country, most countries around the world is this neoliberal idea that if you provide the, inf- the infrastructure and um, if you reduce the b- obstacles to business um, and you maintain low taxation and or like regressive taxation, taxation such as VAT, etc., then you will have economic development. And this is the way to achieve um, economic growth. You know, we can keep reducing the deficit. We can keep imposing all these measures, what Habib Attah called austerity measures, which are implemented all over the world and they're not working anywhere, in my opinion. If we keep doing this, then when will this point happen where we can um, invest again in public, then that we can return to public investments for economic development? You know, if you are always um, trying to maintain balance in the in public spending, then you can't invest in anything new. So this is what happened in the electricity sector, for example. From 1997 till today, they did not invest in any major power plant. And what we have today is a huge crisis because they had to invest when we did not need it, right? So we need investment in, in the productive sectors of our economy today in order to prevent another volatile economic structure and a possible collapse in 20 years. But what what is the... What's the alternative? Because I still don't quite understand that. I, I understand the IMF logic, right? That, okay, if you do these reforms and, you know, make some painful choices potentially, but then we also get like sort of everything, uh, the infrastructure sorted out and the public finances sorted out, then your economy is going to start to grow. And then you're going to have the tax revenues that's going to support the continued investment that you can make on your own in the future. I understand that logic, whether mm. that holds up or not is another story, but I understand the logic. What is the alternative? The alternative would be, first of all, to not lose whatever economic livelihood you have, your population has. And I'm, st- I'm talking here about the ignored uh, agricultural and manufacturing sectors. I know they are not as big as they are in other countries, but a lot of people still depend on them, especially agriculture. And the state does not have any vision, any serious vision to invest in this sector, to make sure that people who are living in rural areas, depending on agriculture, have sustainable livelihood for the next 20 years. 
on the opposite, quite the opposite. Every young person is either migrating or um, staying in their areas, but unemployed and in poor conditions, uh, which is a disgrace, right? For as a, for economists to ignore this aspect is a disgrace. And another thing is, you can't just invest $75 million out of $20 billion in your manufacturing sector. Even if you're not a manufacturing hub, it doesn't mean that you that you don't have any sort of industrial policy. If you want an economic structure that is solid enough to be able to survive a crisis, you can't only rely on finance and banking and real estate and tourism because all of these sectors are very volatile to crisis. But you could you say need- that they're also like betting on things like IT and, and uh, other things like beyond manufacturing, right? That are still productive. Yeah, I mean, to- totally. I'm not talking about traditional manufacturing only, also what is called digital industries or like the production of software and other things that you can export in return for, um, for foreign currency. But you cannot maintain this idea that the only way to bring in dollars into Lebanon is through deposits with very high interest rates. And then anyone who has a choice of investing or saving money or depositing their money in the bank in Lebanon will obviously choose to put their money in deposits because it's a much smarter thing to do. If you can double your money in five years, why would you invest it in any kind of industry? So this whole economic process, and we can have another episode on the economic model with maybe uh, a guest to speak about it, but like this uh, IMF policies and this conference and the state policies and the CIP are reinforcing the same model, and I don't see how it will change anything in the future. Yeah, I think I think we definitely do need to talk more about potential alternatives because my sense, and I haven't quite thought through all of this yet, but my sense is that maybe things are not going to go either way, one hundred percent. We're not going to mm. do obviously all of this, you know, what's in the CIP, what's in uh, the reforms connected to Paris 4. Um, but maybe trying to go halfway is going to be really bad yeah. as well. And so I think maybe there's there's another way that we need to think about this, but I, I haven't quite put everything together in my head yet. On that. It takes time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next time for sure. But by the way, it's really good to have you back. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to be back. <laughs> And uh, we will be back, both of us, next week. Uh, Please tune in then. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfir.